Hello and welcome to the Odds Checker Champions League preview podcast and video. It is the 30th of July and we're previewing the Champions League knockout ties. It's that kind of year, that kind of season, nearly a year since it all started. And I'm joined by Who Scored's very own Martin Lawrence and football writer and editor of the Blizzard, Jonathan Wilson, who are going to be coming up with their pearls of wisdom across the knockout ties in store this week to try and find some value. Thank you very much for you two for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having us. Cheers. Thank you. So let's just start at the beginning, I guess, because it was so long ago that we last saw Champions League football that you can't really begrudge people if they have absolutely no idea what games are coming up, who's playing, what the situation is. So I'm quickly, before I come to you guys, just going to run through where exactly we are. Uh, the last day of Champions League football was on Wednesday, March the 11th, which saw Liverpool knocked out by Atletico Madrid, PSG going through at the expense of Borussia Dortmund, uh, Leipzig thrashing Spurs in Germany and uh, Atalanta winning on aggregate 8-4 over Valencia. So there are four confirmed quarter-finalists. But what we're coming up with this week and what we're going to be previewing here are the second legs of the other half of the round of 16, which saw Leon beating Juventus 1-0, Manchester City beating Madrid in Madrid 2-1, uh, Bayern Munich thrashing Chelsea at the bridge 3-0, and Napoli and Barcelona drawing one all. And, you know, you may not really understand when. You might have heard about Lisbon and a festival of football coming up, but these second legs are being played behind closed doors at the stadium where they were meant to be played, providing that is possible. So these we're not quite in Lisbon yet, sadly. Um, but we're going to start at the top. Uh, and the one of the first games we're going to be seeing, which is on Friday evening, and it sees Manchester City hosting Real Madrid. And City are short price favourites for the tie. They're 8-11. to 11. Real Madrid, 18-5, to five, and uh, the draw just over 7-2. to two. And anybody who, you know, like me, follows a bit of La Liga, watches a bit of City as well, will think, you know, one goal advantage for Manchester City coming into this tie, even though they're at home, still feels fairly precarious, especially when you're thinking about Zinedine Zidane's Real Madrid. But the odds suggest otherwise. 2-13 to 13 best price in sporting bet that Man City uh, qualify through the tie. Real Madrid, 11-2, to two, which would suggest... The Madrid don't come into this in their best form. But Jonathan, they've, they've just won La Liga. So, so what am I missing here? Yeah, I, I mean, I think if the game had been played in March, it would have been pretty straightforward for City. But I think what we've seen since since football began again is this Real Madrid, um, they've been very good defensively. I think a lot of the issues they had in that regard have been sorted out. Thibaut Courtois, who had a very shaky start to time in Madrid, suddenly looks a commanding goalkeeper again. Uh, you can see a proper structure there about Madrid. They're not a particularly exciting team at the moment. They're not a, a thrilling team. But they, you know, even when they were winning Champions Leagues, I think they weren't sort of in the, the mould of Real Madrid of, of the late 50s. They were quite a functional team, albeit with brilliant players. And they seem to have got that, that winning mentality back. I guess the big thing against them in this tie is the absence of Sergio Ramos. Yeah, absolutely. Ramos sent off in that first leg. And you mentioned how they're solid they've been def defensively. He's also popped up with a fair few goals since the uh, since the break. And certainly his absence will be felt. But Martin, when you look at this tie and you look at the odds, are you surprised to see City so short? Or do you think this should be fairly straightforward for them? I'd say I'm surprised. I, I would definitely have them as favourites. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't see them that short. I just think, like Jonathan th says, I think the, the absence of Ramos is... is really key. I just feel like it's probably going to be Eden Militao who comes in. 
is a good young centre-back, but obviously nowhere near the experience of Ramos. Uh, they've Real Madrid have failed to win four of the ten matches Militao has started this season. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's not an, an adequate replacement as it stands. Uh, he may well be in the future. Um, but, yeah, like you say, Ramos, even for goals, has been... It's been a remarkable season, and obviously everyone will point to the fact that he takes penalties. He scored six of those. He still scored five goals, like non-penalty goals, 11 goals from centre-back. It's only him and Karim Benzema who scored more than four in La Liga for Real Madrid, and that shows, I guess, what Jonathan's saying, in that they're a much more functional side now, and also that they're they're now heavily, heavily reliant on Karim Benzema, who's probably had his best season, if not ever, at Real Madrid than for, for many years. Uh, he's been outstanding. Uh, they've only scored 70 goals, which for a title-winning team is incredibly low. They only scored 63 last season. And obviously, you look at the, the sort of loss of, of Ronaldo as the, as the turning point. They scored 100-plus goals in all but one season with Ronaldo. Uh, so the drop-off is, is massive. So there's a, there's a massive shift in, in what Real Madrid actually are now. Uh, and like Jonathan says, only 25 goals conceded in the league. And that's really how they won the title this season. Two sides who certainly like to dominate possession, um, especially the way the City's high-intensity play. But even in the first leg, I think both teams completed over 450 passes in the game. Given what's at stake here, obviously Madrid have to um, try and take the game to City. So in terms of a, a tactical battle, Jonathan, how do we expect this one to play out? Well, I'm not sure they will take the game to City, certainly in the first half, maybe even the first hour. I think mm. if you look at City defensively and this has been a problem all season and the reason they've lost you know they lost nine league games this season uh the reason that that um they've looked defensively suspect is on the counter so if Real Madrid can sort of lure City forward which I think won't actually be that hard because that's just how City play then, then I think City are really vulnerable what, what we've really seen with City this season um and I'm, I'm I'm not sure whether it's an issue of personnel they obviously didn't replace Francois Company. Uh, they had the the injury to Laporte, Stones and Otamendi haven't been in, in you know the, the doubts we had about them have not been resolved. Uh, so it may it may simply be an issue of personnel, but I do wonder w- with Guardiola, what we saw in 2009, 2011, that sort of three season period, they it was it was a new style of football. We'd never seen anything like that before, and then the tendency then was to focus on the possession, but I actually think the pressing was at least as significant. Mm. And um, I remember Alex Ferguson after the 2011 final saying he'd never he'd never felt in a game his team had been so unable just to keep the ball. Um, and I guess the two to go together that when you know if, if the opposition is so good at keeping the ball, then when you have the ball, it puts great pressure on you because you know when you lose it, you're not going to get it back. But they were brilliant at pressing. And what we've really seen, I think, in the nine years since, is repeatedly Guardiola's sides when they have lost. It has been to, to actually quite simple balls in behind them. That if you can beat the press, you have a chance against them. And that glass jaw that I think has always been lurking there has become massively pronounced this season. And that, I think, is a, is a huge problem for City in terms of winning the Champions League. That every side will look at how Chelsea played against them, for instance, in, in the game where the title ended up being decided. That Chelsea were played off a park for 20, 25 minutes. And then the second half, simple balls in behind City's defence kept creating chances. Mm. So Real Madrid will look at that and think, we don't actually have to do anything for an hour. It's almost like when Arsenal went to Liverpool in 89, the, you know, the, the George Graham thing of, if we're still in this at half-time, 
and then we yeah you know, if we can get a goal they will be rattled so i i, I think this is actually a, a a really fascinating game um the, the the problem for for madrid is they do have to score twice and whether they'll be able to create enough to do that whether they have enough pace through midfield to really unsettle city i don't know but i i i think it's going to i you know i think it will be a you know a really close tense tense occasion Certainly seems to be a blueprint um, over the course of the season and how to beat City. And we've seen, obviously, Manchester United uh, do it a couple of times as well. Sides who, who can spring on the counter and get in behind Madrid. Just quickly, Jonathan, you mentioned Pep's style of play. And, and it's interesting to note here we've got two managers in Guardiola and Zidane. Um, two of the most decorated managers in the game. Um, Zidane, obviously, with a Champions League rec- record at Madrid. And Pep at Barcelona, at Bayern Munich and now at City. Pep Guardiola gets a lot of credit for his management style, whereas the general conversation around Zidane seems to be that his achievements are less down to his tactical nous. But how, I mean, do we know how these matchups between these two managers generally go or have gone in the past? I'm not sure they've ever played each other before, have they? I can't think it of an occasion. Is this tie the it. first? Yeah. I think it is, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Zidane, I guess he, you know, we like our managers now to have a philosophy and to be very sort of eloquent in explaining that. And Jürgen Klopp clearly is very good at that. Guardiola is very good at that. Um, Zidane, you know, in Spain there was a tendency, certainly early on at, at Madrid, to, to dismiss him as a as a clappy hand manager. That he didn't actually do anything other than sort of make the players feel good about themselves. I think it's actually slightly more complicated than that. But if, if you look at Zidane, you look at the teams where he was really successful. Okay, there's Real Madrid. There was the Galacticos period when they actually they weren't that successful. Mm. And I think the interesting thing about about that team is Zidane was clearly quite frustrated about it. If you think of the comments he made when Makaleli left. He was very aware of the need for defensive solidity. If you look at the when he won the World Cup with France in in '98 under Jacquet, a very defensively solid team. Uh, you look at his, the Juve side he, he played in, again under Lippi, a very defensively solid team. So actually, his his formative influences are defensive solidity, keep it tight, and if you have two or three brilliant players. Things will happen. And that's how they won those three Champions Leagues in a row. Mm. They weren't particularly great to watch. There was no sense of this is taking football into a new tactical dimension. Uh, And maybe because we got got so used to the tactical conversation being about these overreaching, these overarching philosophies, maybe we didn't quite appreciate how well he organised the the defences. And I think the other thing that really stood out about his management when they won those three successive Champions Leagues was how effective his substitutions often were which suggests that the idea he wasn't doing anything and just sort of standing on the sideline clapping is, is fallacious, that he, he was very good at, at working out how a game was going and making the, the requisite changes. So he's sort of, a, I think, a slightly old-fashioned manager in that it's about organisation, it's about um, not letting things slip, uh, it's about motivation, it's about making the right changes at the right time. It's not about you know, putting some theory into practice on the pitch. Interesting. I remember that that uh, Champions League final, the Atleti game, um, remember Joe Atletico, where he basically, Simeone, Simeone, they just dropped in very deep. They frustrated them and they broke on the counter. And maybe we could see a similar performance here. Going to push you both for a prediction. So, Martin, coming to you first, what, how do you reckon this game will go? What do you reckon will be the, you know, if you, if you have to give me a score necessarily, but do you reckon there'll be goals? Do you reckon we'll see Madrid uh, doing a job over, over City? I don't. On the latter, I, I think <laughs> uh, I think Karen Benzema has to have has to have a great game. 
for, for Real Madrid to, to get the result they need here. Like Jonathan says, they really need two goals. Um, and this Real Madrid side aren't particularly well back to do that against Man City, I wouldn't say. Um, but I don't, I don't think it'll be a high-scoring game. Um, and yeah, uh, Jonathan's convinced me, basically. <laughs> I, I do think it'll be a, it'll be a tense game. Uh, and uh, I'd go for an under 2.5 if I was going to have a little bet. Um, and I think there'll be value in that as well. Yeah, it's a massive price, 7 or 4. Um, normally, you're seeing unders probably being just about favourite in uh, in games, maybe not in the Champions League. But 7 or 4, uh, under 2.5 goals, that is best price for Bet365. It is as short as 6 to 4 elsewhere. As ever, make sure you download the Odds Checker app for all of the best prices. Uh, Jonathan, what do you? I'm, I'm guessing you're going to kind of side with Martin there about it being a pretty cagey low goal scoring affair. Yeah, I mean, obviously there is the potential that if if Real Madrid get an early goal, it could go, yeah, you know, like like the City Monaco games, it could be you know five three or something. But <laughs> uh, and I also I think if Ramos had been there, his threat from set plays is such you could see Real Madrid really putting pressure on City of nicking a goal and getting a couple of corners late on and there's a bit of panic sets in. Um, but I think City will probably... I mean, I think the loss of Aguero is huge for them as well. That, that he has that sort of sharpness to... Uh, you know, he needs fewer chances to score a goal than Gabriel Jesus, put it put it that way. Mm. So, yeah, I can see this being sort of a, a tight KG 1-1, something like that. A tight KG 1-1. Yeah, go on. Go on Sorry, I think the point on Aguero is really interesting. Obviously, he didn't play the first leg. He was out of the first leg as well, and they played Bernardo Silva as a as a false nine. And this was this will just be really interesting for Gabriel Jesus, I think, in terms of do we re- we really get to see what Pep Guardiola thinks of Gabriel Jesus here, like whether he's the the answer post post Aguero, whether whether he gets the nod, um, will be will be interesting. That's that's one of the sort of selection dilemmas that I'll be I'll be looking out for. Yeah, I can't work Gabriel Jesus out. I kind of there's a large part of me thinks he's sort of a B plus player who'll never quite step up. But equally, there's part of me thinks he could score forty goals next season, and it wouldn't be that much of a surprise. Mm. You see, sometimes with players in the mid twenties, I mean, Mohamed Salah, I guess, is the best example. Suddenly, they work out how to score goals, and it becomes really easy for them. And he could make that kind of progression, or this might be it. And I, I don't know which is is the case big couple of weeks for him to, you know, he's leading the line for the favourites for the whole competition in the absence of Aguero. As you mentioned, 5-3, Jonathan, I'm going to say the price just so you can claim it if it does uh, turn out to be the case. Uh, 150 to 1, about 5-3. One all you also mentioned as well, which is 17 to 2, as short as 13 to 2 elsewhere. 17 to 2, again, with Bet365. And in the first goal scorer market, we have Gabriel Jesus is the 9 to 2 favourite. So that covers off a game that, I'm still saying it's in the balance, despite City being prohibitively short price favourites to qualify onto a game now where I think we'll lose our credibility if we say this one is still open. Uh, Bayern Munich hosting Chelsea. Uh, this is um, it's 3-0 on aggregate going into the game after Bayern doing an absolute job on Chelsea in the first leg. Bayern are 1-100 to uh, to qualify from this one. Chelsea 50-1. to to qualify and Martin, it's pretty hard to un- uh, argue with that, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, <laughs> you just uh, Chelsea don't keep a clean sheet in that game, so this isn't a game where they need three or four goals. It's probably a game where they'd need five or six to to actually qualify. I mean, that, that five three is probably about as likely as nil nil. <laughs> yeah, I think this is an interesting game, just in case, in the case of like as a neutral, 
if you want to watch goals and you want you want to watch a fun game, this should be a fun game. But it's also the least interesting game of the of the sort of second legs, just because it it is cut and dry. It's it's, it's done in my opinion. I can't I can't make any stats case otherwise. Um, but it'll be fun. <laughs> it should be fun. But, I mean, we we have seen, and I know this is massively clutching at straws, but we have seen in the Champions League in the last couple of years, some extraordinary stories. We've also seen Chelsea this season in this competition, you know, react to adversity in a pretty special way. I mean, is, is there something we could say maybe about Frank Lampard and his desire to prove himself? I mean, he'd have been smarting. He'd have been hurt after that first leg. Is this, yeah. even if they, they go out, you know, he'll want to go out fighting and prove that they're not going to, you know, just be, be played off the park by, by Bayern again. Yeah, I think... In, in terms of the thing that Frank Lampard has managed to prove above anything else is that he can he can manage big games. Mm. Uh, he, he's done that well. Obviously, the, the reverse leg wasn't a case in point of that. But like in the league he, he, and in the domestic cups, he's done that well. So I don't think he's got a lot to answer for there. But it's, with Chelsea, it comes down to one thing, and that's their defence and their goalkeeper. And they, haven't, they haven't kept a clean sheet. Which one? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's another talking point. But they haven't kept a clean sheet. At, uh, away from Stamford Bridge in the league all year, no, it's, in, it's in the calendar year. And they actually conceded the most goals away from home post lockdown in the entire league. They conceded 14 goals away from home, and obviously, yeah, I know the away the home advantage sort of thing is a bit scrapped here, but they're still away from Stamford Bridge, and that still seems to be affecting them. Um, so what you're saying yeah. is, it's through natural variance. It's about time they kept kept in a way clean sheet. Is that the? Yeah, uh... yeah, they're due, they're due a clean sheet, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan, can you jet us up any other way? I mean, I'll, I'll run through quickly the match odds. Uh, Bayern a four to nine to win the game. Uh, the draw uh, four to one, and Chelsea six to one. Um, is there any way you can jet us up to give any Chelsea fans hope, or is it a case of tune in if you just want to see some goals? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, there's two massive problems there for Chelsea. Uh, which is if they, you know if they are taking this seriously as a game where they they want to try and get get through, they have to attack, and that <laughs> expose them to the counter attack. Now they've conceded more goals on the counter than any other team in the Premier League this season. Uh, Lampard's derby last season conceded a high proportion of goals on the counter than any other side. Lampard cannot defend against the counter. You look at Bayern, you look at the pace of Niabri, uh, or Alfonso Davis coming down the left. You know, they're a really, really good counter-attacking team. Lewandowski is the ideal forward to play on the counter, hold the ball up and lay it off. You know, it's impossible to see Chelsea keeping a clean sheet here. And it could be really humiliating because of the other reason, which is that um, under normal circumstances, Bayern would have league games going on at this time, and they'd be quite happy to rest players and take it easy. Well, they haven't played a league game for what three weeks, and mm. they've got they've got the you know the quarterfinals coming up in Lisbon the week after, so they have to get some fitness. So they logically, at least for an hour or so, will play this hard. Uh, so I, I can see this being pretty embarrassing for Chelsea, especially given presumably their players are sort of thinking this is a bit of hiding and nothing here. And the point mm. about Kepa is. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been, I think, more critical of Lampard than a lot of people this season, which doesn't mean I hate Lampard, just to be clear about that. I just have certain <laughs> doubts. Um, but Kepa has made it sort of impossible for him because Kepa has let in a higher proportion of shots on target than any other keeper in the history of this stat being collected, which Opta began collecting these stats in 2003. There's no keeper has been so poor as him. I think he lets in 
I think it's around about forty-five percent of shots on target he lets in. So, you know, if, if you have nine shots in the game, you're going to score four goals. Yeah, <laughs> Claudio Bravo would be proud of those stats, I think, as well. But uh, it's certainly difficult this for, for for Chelsea. I mean, I would say even last season at Derby, um, Lampard does have a way of, of lifting his players. Um, and so whether, I mean, it's going to be an interesting first 15, 20 minutes. I'm not in no way suggesting Chelsea come back into this at all, but I do think they will come out swinging, let's say. I don't know if that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing, though, as Jonathan says, in terms of the tactical battle, because that will leave them very vulnerable. Uh, we'll just mention the goal lines here. Uh, over two and a half is predictably short at four to nine. But over three and a half is um, a shade of odds against about 21 to 20. So, um, if you do want to back goals, that does seem a way to go uh, over four and a half. So five goals or more, 13 to five. But it does seem like the writing is probably on the wall here for Chelsea in, in a you know, in uh, a season or in the past couple of years where we've seen so much drama in the Champions League. I'm pretty sure we can say that this will be uh, the most dramatic comeback of the lot. Although I did watch uh, Istanbul yesterday on ITV4. So that, have, that got me dreaming for Chelsea fans that we could see another three goal comeback. But pretty unlikely. Uh, on now to the games that don't have uh, English representation and the tightest of the lot sees Juventus against Lyon on Friday night and Juventus are just about favourites to qualify here. Six to seven, that famous price. Uh, six to seven best price to, to qualify. Lyon uh, around about 11 to 10. Lyon won the game in France 1-0 and you know, I'm guessing a lot of people watching and listening to this, Jonathan, won't have been following Serie A or League A very much. So what kind of form do these two come into this game in? Well, I mean, Lyon, we've kind of got no idea. There's uh, the, the Coupe de la Ligue final uh, they'll have played, but that, yeah, that's it uh, since lockdown yeah, three months ago. So so I think that's a big problem for Lyon, that they just have, have had no competitive football. On the, other, on the other hand, they've been able to prepare for this. Um I mean, but I mean, even before lockdown, their form wasn't great in France. Uh, you know, only just, uh, I mean, they, they, they didn't qualify for Europa League, did they? They missed out on the final weekend. Um, so, you know, it was a major surprise they, they won that first leg. And it was a little bit of a smash and grab. Uh, Juve have, have won Serie A, but I think they've done it in incredibly unconvincing style. And they've, they've basically won it because the other challengers have had even worse forms since lockdown. I think Juve... I, I, I sort of think the the, 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 the status of Juve, and I, I guess this also applies to Barcelona, we'll come on to at the minute, shows everything that is wrong about the economics of modern football. So Juve essentially got bored of winning Serie A. They manage having won four doubles in five years in the league in the other year because they, they, they think Allegri is not, not going to win them the Champions League, even though he's got the two finals. And they bring in Sarri and they go, OK, well... We've seen Saris Napoli playing this this brilliant, expansive, fluid, modern football, and it didn't go so well at Chelsea. But you know, his Napoli, you know, there was, there was evidence he could do it in Serie A, so it was a logical appointment. But the problem is, their other massive gamble to win the Champions League is still at the club, which is Ronaldo, mm. and Ronaldo is is clearly still a brilliant footballer. Thirty one goals a season, but he's also a static footballer. He doesn't move, even when he was at his absolute peak. He never pressed. That's mm. why Alex Ferguson ended up playing him through the middle and playing Rooney on the wing in in in, uh, in 2007-8 in the, in, the, in the Champions League because you couldn't rely on Ronaldo to track his fullback. 
So you cannot play Sari football with Ronaldo. You cannot play Ronaldo football with Sari. So it's just a very simple measure of how disconnected that team is, how everything just goes through Ronaldo. He's got 31 goals. Dybala's got, got what, I think, 14, uh, mid-teens anyway this season. Higuain's got seven. Nobody else got more than three. Nobody's getting any goals from midfield. And you look back to this Napoli side when they had that incredibly fluid front line of Insigne and Callahan and Dries Mertens. And you had uh, Marek Hamšík breaking from midfield and scoring, mm. you know, six or seven goals a season. Uh, you had Zielinski or, or Allen breaking forward. You had the two fullbacks pushing on. You, they were creating opportunities, creating goals from everywhere. Juve, just everything goes through Ronaldo. And it's so predictable and so static and so slow that the fact that they're still, you know, um, favourites to, to get to the, the last eight of the Champions League is just the, the rich are so insulated from the consequences of any mismanagement that, I don't know, there's something vaguely, it's just wrong. It's a sign of football's decadence. What an impassioned speech. They couldn't agree more. Um, Juventus, Martin, as, as Jonathan's touched on there, seemed to be the least um, praised Scudetto winner for a long time. You know, everything, I don't watch much Serie A, but everything I read about it, everything I, I see people talking about this Juventus team kind of echoes what Jonathan says there. Just not really much to get excited about whatsoever. Yeah, so there's a clear sense that the, the tide is turning in Italy if it hasn't already turned. Uh, you've got Atalanta there who are just the sweethearts basically of, of the nation and of the neutral basically uh, and Juventus are so opposite that right now uh, they've won their ninth Scudetto running despite stuttering over the line like Jonathan says it's one of their worst runs of results in recent memory and they've won the league without topping any real metric any raw metric they're not top for goals they're not top for goals conceded they're not top for shots Shots conceded, possession, pass accuracy. And that just points to Jonathan's point about this just being so much through one man, so much through Ronaldo uh, and Dybala to a lesser extent, who it should be said has been very, very good post-lockdown. But again, I can only echo the sentiments of Jonathan. When you look beyond those players and further back, particularly, and into the midfield, there's a, there's a real problem there. They're not, they're, not a, they're not an elite team by any means anymore. And Miralem Pjanic, who's been one of the best players in Italy for for a number of years, hasn't had his best season and is now leaving. So how they how they replace him is a is a big deal. But yeah, this isn't this isn't a dominant side in Italy anymore. Despite how weird that sounds, having just won their ninth their ninth title in a row. So this is an intriguing game. I still think the fact that Leon haven't played haven't played football in months is is the defining factor here. And why it makes Juventus probably a good price. Uh, they would be favourites normally anyway, but f- for that reason, I just I just think that that's that's a very good value bet for Juventus to go through. Um, but beyond that, I don't see them getting anywhere. So back Juventus here, and then get against in the future. Yeah, ten to eleven actually each side now uh, in places. So you can get ten to eleven Juventus to qualify. Um, again with bet three six five. Um, any anything to note, Martin, from your end about about Leon? You said that as obviously they haven't played for a long time, but um, any kind of players or dangers that we could see them um, posing to Juve? Hussein uh, Wa has had a very good season, uh, and I think the, the signing of Bruno Bruno Guimaraes. Mm. Uh, Lovely pronunciation. Yeah, well, that's that's a guess to be honest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's, a, he's a very um, promising player and had made a very good start 
they make good acquisitions. They're losing Lucas Toussaint uh, to Hertha in the summer, but he obviously scored the goal uh, in the reverse leg, which is a very rare goal for him. They've got good young players, um, but it's impossible. It's impossible to read anything into what form they'll come into this game in. Um, so yeah, it, it's a tough one to to make a case for Leon, but it'll, at the same time, I don't see Juventus running away with it by any st- stretch. Yeah, I mean, I think Leon need to score. I can see them going through on away goals, but yeah, you know, the idea that they can they can keep it at nil nil, I think, is is unlikely. Cristiano Ronaldo is twenty three to ten to score the first goal. Um, you know, always Ronaldo, a very short price in that market indeed. And, you know, as Jonathan said, goals not coming from many other places in that side, so that is probably makes sense. But it feels like. Now, Juve might have got lucky with their draw here rather than anything else. Uh, we'll move on to the fourth game on Saturday evening, uh, the fourth tie, I should say, over the, over the weekend. Uh, and that sees Barcelona hosting Napoli. Uh, Barca for the match are 8-11, to 16-5 uh, to draw, Napoli 17-4. to uh, And in the to-qualify market, we have Barcelona are 2-5 uh, favourites and Napoli 11-5. Uh, to five. You, you mentioned, Jonathan, a second ago, Sari's Napoli. Um, and it's fair to say probably that these are two sides who are looking, you know, only shades of their former past recent glories. Yes, which I think for Napoli is more forgivable, you know, just mm. in terms of budget. They, they, they're clearly going to, you know, there's going to be waves of uh, of success and, and less success. And they, yeah, they have improved uh, since since Christmas. That's, that's, that's clearly the case. But Barca just... I mean, the, the amount of money they've wasted is extraordinary over the last two or three years. And, and again, the fact that they're probably going to get to the quarterfinal of the Champions League and they're going to get all the money that that entails, it just sort of... It's, that's just why or how football is broken. That mm. um, Again, you have a manager who's won two league titles in a row, you're top of the league, but you, you decide almost on a whim that, yeah, this isn't really working, we're not going to win the Champions League this season, so we better get rid of him rather than looking at the fact that the midfield has been dysfunctional for at least three years. Uh, and then now you get rid of Valverde, which up to a point you can sort of think, well, ruthlessness, when you start to have doubts, maybe is a sign of, a, a, of good leadership, that you don't just sort of hang around collecting the trophies you've stopped caring about. You, you do sort of take the action you need to kick on to the next level. But you've got to have some kind of plan. You know, maybe ring up Xavi before you sack Valverde or ring up Ronald Koeman rather than to turn to poor third-choice Kike Setien who comes in barely even as a placeholder and essentially seems to have no authority at all in a dysfunctional squad where nobody seems to get on with anybody anymore. The players who do get on with each other are all sort of 35. Um, I mean, there's no way Barcelona can win the Champions League this season. They'll probably go through this tie, but the midfield just does not function. Mm. And we've seen them again and again and again get ripped apart. Yeah, Juve ripped them apart. Roma ripped them apart. Liverpool ripped them apart. Even Chelsea, that game at Stamford Bridge, when they, they drew 1-1, did they, in that first leg? Chelsea ripped them apart through midfield. They're very lucky to get away with a 1-1 draw two years ago. The, the midfield cannot win a Champions League. Put the midfield right. Stop faffing around with the coach. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned the coach. For people who haven't seen Setien's Barcelona, how does it deviate from the previous iterations of this side? Oh, I think, I think they do hold the ball a bit better. You know, there's clearly a more overtly Cruyffian focus, which is obviously what Barcelona are aiming at. I mean, mm-hmm. Valverde um, was... He was an assistant coach, wasn't he, under Cruyff in the late 80s? He, he, or did he play in that team? Anyway, he was, he was part of that setup. 
so he, you know, he has got Croyfian um, heritage, uh, but Setian is an out-and-out Cruyff disciple. Mm. But but they don't press well enough. And to be honest, I don't think you can press well. This is the problem. We, I mean, okay, the midfield is dysfunctional because of personnel and because of organisation. But one of the reasons for that is that Messi now creates a massive problem for them. That while he remains probably the best football in the world, and while he is the person who has papered over cracks for the last two or three years, he you have to make accommodations for him because he cannot lead the press as he used to 10 years ago. Um, but it's very hard to do that when he's playing alongside Tubby Luis Suarez, who <laughs> essentially can't run anymore. Uh, and you know, one of the reasons they brought Griezmann in was that Griezmann is that sort of athlete forward who, who maybe could do that. Um, and yet you're asking him to play on the left, which he's not particularly comfortable with. Mm-hmm. You know, he needs to play through the middle or play on the right, but obviously Messi plays on the right, and Suarez plays through the middle. So again, you sort of think, what was the what was the process and management that led to that signing? What what was the decision making that, that was gone through? And if you decide to sign Griezmann, you have to also then decide to sell Suarez. The two together, or or you just you, know, you, you Suarez becomes the backup. Mm. But clearly, the relationship between him and Messi is so strong that becomes very difficult. So, the the, the yeah, everything there from from boardroom to coach to to the dynamic of a squad is totally dysfunctional. Martin, any more positive words for Barcelona, or, or do you agree <laughs> that this is um, you know maybe there for the taking for Napoli? Uh, I'm not sure it's there for the taking for Napoli. Um... Just to be clear, I, I didn't say that either. <laughs> no, that's true. That's fair. I, I, I was more saying. Yeah, that's. I put words in your mouth there. I'll take it back and just say, um, are you similarly uh, negative, let's say, about about this Barcelona side and, and what they can achieve in the Champions League this season? Yeah, I think you can't not be. And like Jonathan says, it's a it's a really. I guess it's a similar case in a way to Ronaldo, where uh, Messi is obviously far and away their best individual player, but is he is he blocking progress at the club? Uh, that will become that is becoming more and more of a of a question, I guess. I think one of the things, one of the things that you look at, and it seems really basic, but Barcelona created so many chances for all their passing. They created so many chances. They knew when to make that pass, that killer pass. I'm not sure, besides Messi, that that's there anymore in the team. That their their shots, their basic shots per game figures have fallen year on year for four years now. They're down to 13 shots per game, which is incredibly low. It's 33rd in Europe's top five leagues, which ranks below. Southampton, Freiburg, Lecce, but they're still fourth for goals, and that's because of Messi. So it's it's one of those days that's sort of a vicious circle. And they're still fourth for goals, not just because of Messi's goals, but because of Messi's assists. So he, he, 20 plus goals and 20 plus assists is, is incredible, but it just shows how much he's carrying that team. And when that decision will be made to transfer some of that reliance onto other players and whether they're actually good enough. Um, so yeah, based on how how Barcelona have spent money over the last three or four years, when Messi leaves, it's it's really tough to see see what happens there, uh, to see if they can sustain any sort of dominance. And it will all be through obviously their their philosophy that they do that. But they've still been reliant on on star players. And when Messi goes, and Suarez, like Jonathan says, is past his peak, um, still still. Still good for goals, but past his peak for sure. Griezmann hasn't really worked out, and that's again probably a positional issue. Um, but yeah, there's there's big problems there, 
but again, it's one of those where I think they'll win the game <laughs> this time. <laughs> um, but again, whether they go beyond that point is a is a question mark. I think Napoli are an interesting team, so we'll see. But Barcelona have to give pick up the phone and call the Solihull Messi, I think, don't they? But uh, when when he's right, done, yeah, yeah. but. Uh, but when um, you mentioned Napoli, an interesting team, um, elaborate on that for us. For anybody, you know how how have they got on in in Syria since the uh, since the break. So they've been hit and miss really in that order. Obviously, they won they won the Coppa Italia, albeit courtesy of two two draws and a penalty shootout victory over Juventus in the final. Um, and they rode that uh, that high for a little bit. Got got some good wins with a loss against Atalanta in there, I believe. But that's no embarrassment anymore. But uh, since then, they've sort of picked up draws, defeats every now and again. Um, under Gartuso, they've definitely improved, but they still they still lose far too many games, uh, even more than they did before him, to be honest. Um, which, is, which maybe you wouldn't expect from Gartuso, the player. He should set them up defensively very strong. They haven't been that this season. This has probably been Kaladu Koulibaly's worst season for a while even though he's not been bad um but they've lost 12 games this season eight under Gartuso since he was appointed having only lost 14 games over the previous three seasons combined so they're losing far too many games but there's goals they got there's goals without throughout the squad which makes them an interesting team but by the same token they're missing that that goal scorer that they've had in the past that Cavani Higuain Mertens, when he had that incredible season, mm. he's been he's been missing uh, recently for injury. I'm not 100% sure on his status uh, for this game, but it's clear that they're they're missing an out and out goal scorer. They're not their last nine goals have all been scored by different players, and you can see that as a positive. Um, but yeah, they're 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 hard to to call. Um, but I just I just feel like this will be too too far for them. Jonathan, how do you see the game playing out on the night? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if Napoli had been going to go through, they, they had to win the game um, back in uh, in San Paolo. And then, yeah, they, they probably should have won that game as well. You know, they they um, they, they restricted Barca enough. Uh, so I think it's probably, I mean, unfortunately, I think probably not going to be that, that exciting. I think 2 0 Barca, some of that. I'd be looking at Barca to win and under 2.5. I think the issue with, with Napoli for goals, like I said, where they don't have that out-and-out out goal scorer, they still create a lot of chances. And I see them they, I see them creating some chances in this game. Uh, they've had the third most shots in Europe's top five leagues, but they're outside the top 20 for goals. So mm-hmm. there's a big issue there in terms of in terms of conversion rate. And I think that'll, that that's what will cost them in this game. Barcelona and under 2.5 is 4-1, to one, um, which is... Jonathan's uh, tip there, seven or two elsewhere. Um, but now we're going to move on. Um, we're not going to preview the the first few um, quarterfinals, the first two quarterfinals, just because we might hopefully be doing some content before those games once we know the full lineup. But we'll touch on it just now because we're going to run through the uh, the winner market, the outright. And Bayern Munich, I said Manchester City were the favourites. I was just about wrong. Most firms have Bayern and City as joint favourites. Um, but if you're looking at the best prices, which you can find on Odds Checker, uh, Bayern Munich is seven to two, and Manchester City just a tick bigger at fifteen to four. Uh, PSG, with the benefit, the, so the the apparent benefit of of their draw, are eleven to two. Atleti nine to one, Atalanta ten to one, Barcelona 
eleven to one, Leipzig fifteen to one, Juve eighteen to one. So, and Madrid twenty five to one. So what we said, you know, even though Juventus and Barcelona both very very, well, both odds on to go through uh, this weekend, they are both double figure prices to win, which echoes what you've both been saying about the issues that they've got at those clubs. But just talking about the other side of the draw, PSG, Atleti, uh, Atlanta, and Leipzig, all kind of in that top group. There's been a lot of talk about PSG and how this is surely their year, given the side of the draw that they are in. It, is it as easy as it looks? Is it, or Martin, as you've, as you've alluded to, you know, Atlanta, certainly no pushovers. Atleti, as ever in this competition. And Leipzig as well, the, the, the young pretenders who have bundles of ambition in this competition. Uh, yeah, so I, I think, yeah, Atalanta are the team. They're, they're the team that everyone's wanting to watch. And they're a team that can pose PSG massive problems. They can pose any team massive problems. They're just an incredible team to watch. They, they, you seem to be able to put any forward in that team and they'll just start scoring goals at a whim, basically. They've Ilicic, Zupata, um, Malinovsky recently. Luis Muriel's record, especially off the bench, is remarkable. So, given PSG's propensity to absolutely collapse <laughs> defensively, um, you definitely can't bet against Atalanta. And I think most people will be, will certainly be cheering them on uh, to go even further. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't see huge value in PSG in the outright market for sure. Even though they are unquestionably on the on the sort of better side of the draw, and I think Sorry. that that market will obviously fluctuate massively after this. Mm. this round of second legs. Jonathan, who do you think uh, represents the value at the moment to, to win the whole thing? Uh, I don't know if they represent value, cause it, it's, um, but uh, yeah, I think Bayern are, are legitimate favourites. Uh, I think the, the way they've improved since Hansi Flick took over has been incredibly impressive. Uh, I mean, I, I sort of... Um, I'm starting to loathe the place in the same camp as, uh, as Juve, of sort of ha- having a, you're winning the league despite having a sort of transitional season because they have been so good since Anti Flick took over. But it is kind of incredible that they've walked away with the Bundesliga in the end, despite, you know, what was it, did they get beat 5 1 by Eintracht Frankfurt? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's the, the awful start to the season. And despite that, they can still wander away with the league title. But they have been genuinely really good in the Hansi Flick. So, so both those things are true. They are now really good, they were really bad. And it still feels wrong to me. They should have won the league so easily. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think they they are the most complete of, of the sides. And the PSG's problem, and I guess it's it's a uh, it's an aspect of the same issue that I keep coming back to. We have no idea what they're like against good teams because we never see them against good teams, mm. and that's why they collapse, of course, because they're not used to it. So there is nobody in France who plays remotely like Atalanta. I mean, arguably, there's nobody in Europe who plays remotely like Atalanta. But a team who will really come at them, who will press them, who will attack them from all angles, who are kind of, they go in the game sort of thinking, well, if we let in two, that's, we're okay with that. Mm. And I, we, we really don't know how PSG will react. And you know, the way they have reacted to pressure in the past is to sort of panic a bit and get petulant. And if that happens, they're, they're in big trouble. Um, but I mean, I, you know, I think the, the fascination of, of this whole mini tournament is it's not two legs. We don't know how this plays out. We don't know uh, what could happen here. So it's entirely conceivable that over the course of 10 days, and you see it even in World Cups, mm. a team can have a 10-day, two-week run where they suddenly everything just clicks and they play brilliant football. Now, in a World Cup over five weeks, 
they tend to dip away again before the end. But here, it's three matches. And I think that is a huge advantage for a team like Atalanta, who maybe in more normal circumstances, they would get a bit of, of altitude sickness. They, they, they'd, I think you almost saw it with Ajax in the second half of the second leg of a semi-final yeah. last season. Even Tottenham in the final. But they suddenly get to a point at which they, they look around and go, hang on, what, what, what are we doing here? Well, in Lisbon, everybody's going to be going, what are we doing here? <laughs> uh, so I, th- I think that that gives them a, sl- you know, a slight edge on what they normally have. I think it's a real shame for Leipzig that they've lost Timo Werner. I think that's a mm-hmm. disgrace that that's been allowed to happen. Um, I-, I think if they'd had, had him, they would you know, a genuine shout, because I think they've played some excellent football at times this season. I thought they were brilliant against Tottenham. Uh, but without Werner, then you know, it's, it's obviously a diminished side. Uh, and that's... That shouldn't have been allowed to happen, and it's a disgrace it has been. So, yeah, I, I think buying a favourite, I'm sort of excited by Atlanta, but I fear too many people are excited by Atlanta. That's also <laughs> not value. I think City's glass jaw is so pronounced that you can't really favour them. And so I, I end up coming back to Bayern, but reluctantly, because I think they are a little bit short. Interesting. Martin, where are you seeing the value? Uh, yeah, I'd struggle to disagree with Jonathan in terms of, again, uh, in terms of uh, Bayern being the sort of deserved favourites, uh, it's difficult to see beyond them. I think most of these sort of European powerhouses of the last sort of ten years are, are possibly regressing, and Bayern maybe had that regression, but now they look—they certainly look back to their best. They won every single game post lockdown, which is pretty incredible. Given that that title race actually looked pretty interesting <laughs> pre-lockdown, and it was disappointing. Again, coming back to Leipzig, that they. They just drew too many games, really. To I thought I thought they were the they were the shout to sort of put up a real fight to Bayern. So yeah, Bayern Bayern are the form team, and uh, I, I'd say that they're definitely the deserved favourites. If I was looking for value, I know I've, we've both sort of backed against them for this week, but if you're looking for value, just a value bet, maybe put a tenner on it. Twenty-five to one on Real Madrid is is massive. Like we said, that that game will be tight. So those if they if they were able to get through that game, those odds what half if not yeah, more than yeah. that um so yeah 25 to 1 is is the value in the market in my opinion uh, but at the same time that's a value bet rather than a than a tip because i don't think they'll win it but um all, all, all tips have got to be value martin that's the way yeah, you, work yeah, through, it, you know that <laughs> it's true true so I'm yeah gonna... buy, in that case buy another value <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna weigh in um i think that atleti i mean given that i agree with everything said about psg um, that Jonathan's mentioned about how they seem to struggle against the, the better sides because they're not used to it and there's got to be a mental fragility there as well given what's happened over the last couple of years um, I, I'm looking at that side of the jaw thinking somebody's going to have a chance to get through here and given that Werner is no longer at Leipzig and given what we know about Simeone's Atleti and their ability to manage games of this of this nature um, I think that the, the way that the tournament is going to be it being just one game will suit them as well so at 9-1 to one, um, I'm saying that is the one. Um, yeah, and they, they have been much improved since since we came back, haven't they? So mm. I, I think that's probably fair. Yeah. Good. Glad that got the, the seal of honour, <laughs> the seal of approval. Um, sure, it won't no, be I so just good. Wish I said it because it, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a uh, Champions League preview, but um, we are also just quickly going to touch on the Europa League as well because we've got a couple of of English sides um, at the top end of the market. I'll quickly run through the Europa League winner market where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United are the 11-4 to favourites, but they are as short as 15-8 to to win the whole competition 
in places. Um, Inter Milan six to one by Leverkusen eleven. Uh, sorry, thirteen to two. Uh, Sevilla seventeen to two. Wolves seventeen to two. Sixteen to one bar. Let's talk about Manchester United, Jonathan, because I mean I have been. If anyone's un- unlucky enough to follow me on Twitter, I've been pretty vocal about my thoughts on, on their manager. But the the general, um, as a tactician, but the general thinking seems to be since lockdown and since Bruno Fernandes has come in, everything seems to have clicked for them uh, and they are now ready to be a force under Solskjaer. Although in the last couple of days, I've seen a few stats pieces and certainly some quotes from Jose Mourinho claiming the, the hype around Bruno maybe isn't quite as um, as justified as, as as people think. But what do you make of this Manchester United side uh, in this current guise? Yeah, I mean, I was also very down on Solskjaer and I remain pretty down on him. Mm. Um, I, I can't really see United getting in the top two at the moment with Solskjaer as a manager. And I guess to an extent, it depends what their immediate ambitions are. If they want somebody to be a, a sort of very loyal custodian who will play the young players and, and, and sort of help develop Greenwood and, and I mean Rashford's obviously slightly older but still mm. on the development curve um, people like Brandon Williams then, then maybe maybe he's not the worst option um, although when you have Mauricio Pochettino sitting there without a job I, I think that's a difficult <laughs> a difficult yeah. proposition to maintain and there almost seems to be a sense of well you can't sack Ollie when he's got us in the Champions League and I, th- I think that, yeah, that ruthless, as I was talking about at Barcelona and Juve and, and suggesting it's perhaps been slightly misapplied, maybe United could do with some of that. But yeah, I, I can't remember any signing ever having quite such an impact as Bruno Fernandes has had. Mm. And I think the stats that maybe don't quite tell the full story with him because he suddenly made a squad that looked totally incoherent make sense. Um, so it's a bit like uh, you know, you know when you have Google Translate on your phone. I, I only I didn't know this worked. I went to Russia for the World Cup, and you can like hold your camera up over like a a bit of text. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly <laughs> it all goes into like words you understand, and that's kind of what's happened with Bruno Fernandes is the Google Translate of the Manchester United squad. Um, and I, they've got lucky, I think, with with the way the crisis has has altered the market. So it looks like Pogba now will stay. That they managed to get kind of you know. Um, Seven, seven, eight games, how many it was out of him, uh, which they wouldn't otherwise have got. And, and so you can see his relationship with Fernandes looks really good. And with the, the three very quick forwards, that, that seems to work very well. Um, but we did see, I think, in the last what five games. So there was the, the draw against Southampton, the win over Palace, which is a terrible game with two great goals, the draw against West Ham, the defeat to Chelsea in the Cup, and then the, the pretty scratchy win over Leicester. They looked absolutely exhausted. Mm. Now, obviously, they have a couple of weeks to to recover, but also I think that 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 exposes one of Solskjaer's uh, flaws as a manager. That okay, in the circumstances, maybe it's not the worst thing to do to take a gamble on. This is my first team; they're playing well. Just keep them going, keep them going, squeeze everything out of them because we're only talking about six weeks of football. But equally, that might cost them the FA Cup by doing that. One of your jobs as a manager is occasionally to play not 100%, but 95% to rest two or three players so that you can retain a 95% level and not dip to 80%. And I, I think he's failed with that. But I guess from his point of view, gambles work as they are in the Champions League and they, they do have this crack at a, at a trophy. And he has shown at times um, a great capacity to manage games. I think the PSG game in his first season, that second leg... You know, he, he he did a you know a very smart thing of reading the emotion of a game mm. 
mm. killing it after half time, and then having a pop in the last 10, 15 minutes. And sure enough, PSG showed that brittleness that we were talking about when we were talking about PSG earlier. And they got yeah, a bit lucky with the, the bar handball, but still, it worked. And even if it hadn't worked, you'd have been able to say, look, they had two or three decent chances in the last five, 10 minutes. So, in terms of managing games, I think he can, you know, he's fine with that. What I do worry about is how good is he at organizing an attack? against the teams who sit deep and defend well against them. Mm. I mean, I'm not sure how relevant that is to the Europa League, but in terms of him as a you know, as a manager going forward, I, I think that could be a problem. So, yeah, I, I sort of, I'm still not, not 100% sold on Solskjaer, but that doesn't mean that United aren't worthy favourites for the, for the competition. It's interesting you mentioned as well the, um, the managing the squad dilemma, because I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that they played Palace the game before the Chelsea... FA Cup game and he made two substitutions in the whole match despite the fact they were tuning it up and coasting it just seems very naive uh, thing to do not to, to just kind of take your players out of out of the firing line and get them fit and rested um, Martin moving on from United unless you have anything you're desperate to say I mean they're playing against Lask after beating them 5-0 so this game this first game at least will be a formality but some other decent sides in the competition certainly I mean Inter at 6-1 uh, Leverkusen, as I said, thirteen to two in Sevilla at seventeen to two. Is it fair that United uh, are so short in amongst that company? No, I don't. I don't see the sense in that gap uh, from United as favourites to to Inter in particular, uh, who are a very good side. Uh, and if, again, if we come back to the Solskjaer debate, uh, a tactical battle up against Antonio Conte will be will be a tough one for him. Uh, I'm not sure many people would have have Solskjaer as a winner in that one but that remains to be seen uh, but I think I think Inter are good are good odds and I think like you said Leverkusen Sevilla both, both very capable uh, I even think Wolves a decent price mm. um, they're, they're a very hard team to beat they look tired they do look tired that's, I think that's the issue with Wolves and, and that's so forgivable <laughs> they've been playing for about 24 months straight it seems Um so yeah, they they look tired, and that's 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 what goes against Wolves because I think they would be a good price otherwise. Um, but yeah, there's there's teams in there that are as good at Man- as Manchester United in my opinion. Uh, I think the issue, like you say, is that is that next game uh, into Hatafe, which is a it's a very very difficult game. So if they come through that, um, I certainly don't see them being any different to Manchester United in this tournament, and, and, and then the price changes dramatically. Uh, and obviously, I think obviously the the Lukaku Manchester United uh, thing is a, is a narrative that will play um, if that were ever to happen. Um, but yeah, uh, I see I see Inter as the value if if you're looking for an outright that would that would be my tip for that. Um, but I agree with Jonathan that Manchester United, as things stand, are the are the sort of worthy favourites for the time being. I think, yeah, and just with Wolves as well, it's worth pointing out that they have the added incentive of trying to get into the Champions League, which is massive, whereas Manchester United, having secured third position, no longer have that that need to do so. Um, that brings us to the end of the Odds Checker Champions League preview, where we also, in passing, covered the Europa League. Uh, thank you very much to both Martin Lawrence and to Jonathan Wilson for joining us today. And before we let you go, just want to point you in the direction again of the Odds Checker app. If you're listening to this podcast or watching this video, uh, it's clearly because you have an interest in the Champions League and in gambling. And if that is the case, 
and you need to download that because it's where you get all the best prices, the best bookie offers, the best free bets, and also the best tipsters, including the guys at Who Scored. And, and make sure you do go to Who Scored for all of your stats and analysis around all these games, cracking previews as well for every single one of them. Uh, so between Odds Checker and Who Scored, we have you covered for the Champions League. So do enjoy the games and please gamble responsibly. Mm-hmm.